You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjax.com. Well, this is part two of uh, Spiritual Warfare. If you missed last week, you can get the DVD for 1999. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's online for free, obviously. Um, I wanted to recap before we begin and just, just kind of, uh, this is, again, like a topic that can be a little bit confusing, a little bit maybe weird or... or taboo, but I wanted to talk about a little bit of what we covered last week quickly before we dive into today. Uh, Let me pray for us before we begin. God, thank you that you are the King and the Lord of our lives and that you desire to set captives free, God. And so I pray today, God, that you would have the burden of that. God, I release any burden of that from me to you, and you're the deliverer. We love you, Lord. Just come now, bring light, and bring freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... We talked about last week this idea that Satan, or the enemy that we have, there's a, there's a battle that we're in. Paul says we're not, a, we're not in a battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. That there's a battle that we're, we're fighting besides the battle of our flesh, besides the battle of things in our culture, the world. We also are in a battle against the enemy. The war has been won. Jesus on the cross disarmed principalities and powers. He made a spectacle of the enemy. But we still are in battles in our lives. And the degree to which we give permission, in a sense, or legal rights, I, I use the word legal right, we give permission through, through things we've experienced, things that we've done, things that have been done to us, traumatic things, um, the enemy can come in and bring greater deception. And usually he uses two things. He uses temptation and accusation. I mentioned that last week. Accusation it, it is, is the root of that is shame. He accuses you as a, he says you're a failure, you're a sinner, you're, you're never going to make it out of this addiction, whatever it is. He uses accusation. The other side is temptation. He uses the root of pride in us. That he says, this, this doesn't apply to you. This is, this, is, this is fine. You deserve to do this. Just go ahead. You have grace. For, there's grace for this. Just do it. It's, it's, it's temptation. It's rooted in pride. So the battle is in our mind. The enemy has ways in which he attacks us. I, I used the example of Downton Abbey last week. That there's a, a, a fortress like, that we have body, we're body, soul, and spirit. And that the enemy, throughout Scripture, you see Jesus healing those people who have physical problems. He attributes it sometimes to the enemy, not always, and mental problems. And he's, sometimes it's due to the enemy, not always. And he says that these are the two areas of our lives, body and soul, that we can be affected. So today we're talking about the various, I would say, doorways or entry areas in our, in, in, in our lives, categories that we specifically can allow the enemy to come in and affect us, attack us, or tempt us, or accuse us, or whatever it may be. And I wanted to say this before, kind of a disclaimer, because I feel like some of this does sound, on Thursday I was having kind of like a crisis of faith. It wasn't like a crisis, but I was like reading some of these criticisms online of, of this idea and stuff, and I shouldn't have done that. It was a bad idea. But, um, but I was like, you know, I, real, I woke up Friday morning, and I was like, God, is this, all, is this all really true? You know, is this stuff really true? It just sounds so hokey sometimes, you know, like the spiritual warfare stuff. And he, and he said to me, well, he didn't say to me, he didn't say like out loud, but I, this thought came into my mind. I heard it before, but he reminded me that sometimes I offend the mind to expose the heart. I offend the mind to expose the heart. And what he means, what I think he meant by that was that all throughout Scripture, God asks people to trust him when it sounds ridiculous, honestly. It does. There's some things he does and says throughout the Bible. It just sounds crazy. You know, like, when Josh was about to enter Jericho, he has this army ready to attack, and he says, okay, stop, 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 stop. Before you attack, I want you to do this instead. I want you to walk around the city with some trumpets and play, oh, when the, oh, when the saints come marching in or something. 
you know, and like, it just sounds crazy. Like, I have an army ready to go. And then Gideon, he's like, Gideon, I know you've got a big army here, but before you do this, let's, let's whittle it down to about a few hundred, the ones who drink like dogs, or, you know, the ones who drink water like dogs. And then, then you can, but Lord, I, I have the surprise attack. I have a thousand of people. This doesn't make any sense. Can you trust me? I offend the mind to expose the heart. And sometimes that's what he wants to do. He wants to expose, do we trust him? Do we trust him? Even in these, these sort of things that I'm going to talk about right now, like, we should always test it to Scripture. We should always measure everything we're saying according to the Bible. But sometimes God isn't just rational. He's supra-rational. He's above and outside reason. And he sometimes says, this is what I'm asking. Can you trust me? Can you believe what I'm saying? So as we, go, as we jump in, I'm going to start with the, kind of the, the category that sounds the weirdest. It's called the occult. And the occult is just a category that means that which is hidden. So occult activities are activities that people engage in. This has been around for as long as there's been recorded history. There's been fortune tellers and psychics and mediums and witchcraft and all that weird stuff that we, you know, you hear about. Or you, but as, as, long as, it's been, as long as there's been a, a his, recorded history, there's been these, these groups of people that commune with spirits or talk to spirits or try to seek the future. And really what's happening in the occult is there is a desire to obtain secrets and secret wisdom and power. That's the root of the occult. It essentially is people that are trying to get knowledge or information or power over something else, their future or something in their lives or an enemy to curse or something to tell someone else to make them direct their lives. So that's what it really is about. And ultimately, the occult is about elevating man above God. It's the, it's the most serious, I would say, of all these areas because there's no gray area. There's no middle ground. There's no dabbling in this. If you've, if, you know, if, you've been, if you've been involved in it, we'll talk about it in a second how to deal with that. But, but I really feel like, just want to say, don't dabble in darkness. There's just no place for it. There's no joking around. This is not a, you know, this is a serious area. More than any other area, this is the area I say God is like most serious about. In Deuteronomy, he says this, 18, 9 through 12, talking to the, to, the, to the Israelites as they enter the land that God's promised him. And he says this, when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, if you got that verse, do not imitate the detestable ways of the nations that are there. There were these nations that didn't know the Lord, obviously, and they were worshiping demons. They had all this stuff going on that was wicked and perverse. And it says, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter. They were having child sacrifices, who practice divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engaged in witchcraft, casts spells as a medium or a spiritist, or consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same practices, the Lord your God is going to drive out those nations before you. That's how serious it was. Because they were worshiping these things. There were, the reality was an idol is nothing. An idol, a little piece of wood or gold or whatever they had for their idols is nothing. But behind that thing, there are real forces and spirits that people were serving. There's a realm that we cannot see that's just as real as what we can see with our eyes, touch, all, all the senses that we have. And that realm is real. And this is still going on today across the world. You can go to Eastern cultures and they have little idols in their village and they have an idol and they bring food to it every morning as if they're giving a sacrifice or money. They put it there and they want a blessing from that idol. I've seen much darker things than that, which I don't have time to go into in some of my mission trips. But anyway, it's real. And so the list is, there's a huge list. I'm not going to go through all hundred and, you know, some odd things. But I just want to mention, these are some of them that the, that the text already says right there. Mediums, fortune-telling, palm reading, crystals, tarot cards, astrology, transcendental meditation, horoscopes. 
It sounds like, oh, bro, that sounds so harmless. Horoscopes, really? I mean, come on. Just, I would just say, if you're, if you're looking at that stuff to direct your life, it's dangerous. If you're looking at it, it's dangerous. When I was a kid, I went to a palm reader. Not like I went to a palm reader. There was a carnival at our school. And there was a, there was a big carnival, and the school had a palm reader. It just does a, you know, what a, the, I don't know where they did that, but they just had palm readers there. And so I walked in. I was in fourth or fifth grade. And I walk in, and, and the lady looks at my hand, and she says, ooh, that looks bad. And she said, you know, this is in like 10 or 15 years. Something really bad is going to happen. And I was like 10 years or whatever it was in fourth or fifth grade. She said that to me, and I thought, oh, whatever. So I left, and two or three years later, my great-great-aunt was in town from Texas, never met her before in my life, and she was a psychic, and she, she wanted to read my palm. And my mom said, oh, go ahead, whatever, no big deal. So she looks at my palm, and she goes, oh, that looks bad. She goes, oh, 10 or 15 years, this is going to be bad when this happens. And I thought, that sounds like, I heard that before. And, and it, meant, it really didn't seem to do anything, but like 10 or 15 years later, even as a Christian, I go through this really bad breakup in college. This, is, this could be it. This is the bad thing. I get a speeding ticket. This could be it. This is the bad, this is it. She said this. I gave it a little bit of power, a little bit of, and that's what happens. It's so simple and innocuous almost, or, or harmless seeming. And then what, what the next step would have been, had I gone on with this and taken it more seriously, I would have gone and, and tried to figure out what's going to happen to me. I would have gone to a psychic and said, well, can you figure out what, what is it in this 10 years? And they would have, and it would have been more and more deep into this thing. Just a little doorway, a little palm reading, no big deal. My friend in high school, my best friend, she was involved in Young Life for me, she, she um, had a tragedy happen in her life. Her brother was murdered in college. She was trying to break up a fight, and he was murdered, shot to death. Her family was devastated. And they didn't know how to deal with it. And someone told them about psychics. And they went to a medium. And they, and they began to go to these, these psychic people to talk to their dead brother. And she'd come in on Monday from the weekend and she would tell me, Brian, I was talking to my brother. He knew things. The psychic knew things that only my brother and I talked about. She was crying and telling me, this was amazing. And over time, this stuff took over her family's life. They spent thousands of dollars going and finding the most powerful psychic in the southeast. They were traveling around the weekends, and they allowed this to take over their lives. They left the church because the church didn't want them to do it. They left the church. She left all that kind of stuff, and it took, it really took over her life, and she became, you know, I think she became a Hindu or something like that. But the point was, they gave power to this because it was real. It wasn't like these were all charlatans making up stuff. These people really were talking to a different spirit that knew all about my friend and her brother and could say things because it was real. I mean, it's all throughout history. It's not like these are all just charlatans. Some of them are, sure. Some of them are just fakers and they're doing things to make money. But many of them are literally giving themselves, opening themselves up to some other realm. And we as Christians, if that's happened in our lives, whether it be through something as simple as palm reading or Ouija board or whatever it may be, we have to ask ourselves, did I, did I believe any of it? Did I give any of it any kind of authority in my life? And I want to cut it off. I want to cut it off. I want to close this door and, and break any right I've given to the enemy to come in and bring fear, like in my case with the palm reading, or, or greater power, or whatever it may be. As hokey as that may sound, it really is serious. First Timothy says, in 4.1, he says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the later times, many will depart, some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's real. There really is an unseen world that people want to gain authority in and power in. It's a huge thing right now. The New Age movement in the last 20 years, it's so enticing. It's like you can learn, you can have such peace and power and tranquility, and it's a deception. 
It's a false religion. And there are false cults as well. I didn't mention that. If you've been involved with cultic groups that have, again, secret power, as you go through certain levels, you get more information, you get more power, more secrets. The Masons, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, these are cults that have secret teachings that as you get higher up, spend more time, give more money, whatever it may be, you gain this sort of authority. And it's cultic. It's not biblical. And, and the Lord is serious about it. Okay, enough on that. Second one is um, basically habitual patterns in our lives. We talked about, I mentioned this last week, habitual patterns or addictions or ways of thinking. I talked about my struggle with pornography in my past, the addiction I had. And I think that in any addiction, any struggle that we give authority to or power to, it, it opens the door up for the enemy to come in and bring more deception. You know, that, I, I, essentially, the word that comes to my mind when I think of an addiction is, it's an idol. It's almost like a false god. It's like a, it's a thing that you give authority to because you're looking towards that thing to bring you life. You know, originally, you look to that thing, whether it's drugs or alcohol or money or uh, pornography or sexual pleasure, or whatever it may be, the, the addiction, food, you know, eating, eating issues, whatever it may be. You look to that to give you life, like I mentioned last week, and over time, it actually takes life from you. The very thing you thought would bring freedom robs you of freedom. The very thing you thought would give you life, that drug or the alcohol, over time, it takes your freedom and makes you a slave to it. And that's that's a little God in your life. That becomes like a, like a, like a God you're serving that you, get, you give into. You, you serve it because you have to give into this, this need. And it's almost like this part of your Downton Abbey thing, property, is almost overrun. Like you, this area you have no power in anymore. It's a will unto itself. Addiction is a very complicated thing. I mean, it's much more than just spiritual. It's emotional. It's psychological. It can be physical. It's a complicated thing. But at essence, God wants to set people free. He can set you free today of habitual patterns in your lives, and he can do it instantly and over time. Most of the time, it is over time with accountability and and counseling and all that stuff like that, but I believe the the Lord today wants to set people free of habitual patterns in their lives. God, I just, I'm praying right now, Lord, set us free, God, from this stuff, Lord. Set us free, God. I'm just breaking right now to say this. God, I pray, Lord, that you would deliver us, God, from this stuff, from these false idols that we have given into, Lord, over time, the false lie of the enemy that promises life, Lord, would you set us free from this today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Okay, I wanted to say that. So addictions are, are serious. It, it becomes a stronghold, the Bible says. Second Corinthians says, um, Second Corinthians 10.3 says, we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world. I'm going to skip past that. We'll get to that in a second. The weapons we fight are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons we have are divine weapons that have power to demolish strongholds. That's the word, strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's what an addiction does. It sets, it sets your mind against the things of God. It becomes a pattern of thinking. It's almost like you have glasses on through which you see everything else through this thing, that rejection, or it could be some other thing, fear, whatever it may be. You see everything through that lens, that addiction, because it's, it's driving you. And so, as you come to Christ, you bring those thoughts captive. God sets us free. He breaks down that fortress because the battle is in your mind because if you think a certain way, you will live a certain way. If you think a certain way, you're going to live a certain way. And um, Neil Anderson said this, um, if what we believe does not reflect the truth, what we feel cannot reflect reality. 
If what we believe doesn't reflect truth and what we will feel emotionally doesn't reflect reality. So you feel, I got to give into this. I got to give into this. Because you believe something incorrectly about this thing in your life. And you got it, and it feels, like you, it feels like you have no power over it. That's a lie. In Christ, you have authority over this stuff. That's the truth. And the truth transcends the feelings. The truth transcends the facts, the facts of your struggle. It really does. And we assert truth over and against the lie of that habitual pattern of thinking or addiction or whatever it may be. The third um, section or category I want to talk about is generational patterns. I mean, anyone can see that kids emulate their parents. It's just, it's just natural. I mean, we, kids will do things positively and negatively that their parents do. And God set this principle up that his desire, his heart's desire is to, to bless generations of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids through, through living holy. That really is the Lord's desire. He says he'll bless a thousand generations through living a certain way, living for Jesus. My wife's family, three or four generations of, of believers, amazing, amazing family. And it's like you see the blessings of people that have submitted to the Lord year after year. And they've, they've just, the kids just, it, didn't, it wasn't like all this rebellion and stuff to get the kids to come to know the Lord. And all this time of, you know, ridiculous, stuff, you know, years and years. It was just like, it was just part of their, their DNA. And that's God's heart is that he blesses. And he, and he, and he moves that way through, through families. But the converse is also true. And that negative things are also passed down. They're learned Somehow, psychologically, emotionally, they are learned and they're experienced. In Exodus 20, or 34 rather, the Lord declares it, and he says this probably a dozen times throughout the uh, Old Testament. He says, the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and he said, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh is, is in Hebrew, a God, of, a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the, fa- the, the iniquity of the fathers on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's a serious statement. And Jesus Christ appears and says, I'm taking the curse, this curse, upon myself. Galatians says, Christ has redeemed us, 3.13, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. This is amazing. This curse, Jesus Christ takes on himself. It becomes a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So he took this upon himself. We apply it to our own lives. It doesn't just happen. It's there in the bank account, so to speak, of our spiritual inventory that, we, that God has purchased all this for us. And it's there. So there's a pattern in your life. My dad, my dad was angry all the time. He did, my dad's temper, I have, I have the same thing. You know, my mom's fearfulness and anxiety, I have the same thing. Or my grandma. You can just look and you can see, it doesn't take rocket science. You know, it's just like you can see the things in your family that you adopt, you agree with. And sometimes you say, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to be like you, Dad. I hate you, Dad. I'm never going to be as mean as you are. I'm never going to be as whatever it is. Or more serious, like maybe an alcoholic or something like that. And you say, I'm never going to be like that. And then that very thing you just, that vow you just made comes back because you dishonored your parents. You dishonored them by, by, by saying that, even in, even in a jest. And that's a serious thing. We, we're called to honor our parents. It's, it's, a, it's a commandment that we're called to love. And I, and I understand some of us have gone through traumatic abuse by our parents sometimes. We've had imperfect parents. No one's perfect. For, just, I mean, let's get that out of the way. No, parent is, no parent's perfect. And, um, 
we, we, we invite that stuff back in by dishonoring. And so God wants to set us free. If we apply that truth that Jesus Christ has broken the curse, he's broken this, that we can apply it to our life, identify the pattern and apply it to our life in this area. And then the last category I think is probably the most, you know, most common or most, you know, everyone's experiences, traumatic experiences or events in our lives. All of us have had things that have happened to us that have been painful. It could be a loss of a loved one or a serious sickness or illness. It could be, uh, you know, something traumatic like a car accident or, or abuse. And these things oftentimes are areas of our lives that in the moment seem just to be, you know, not that serious, but then later on, we see a pattern of thinking that, ev- that evolves over time because of this traumatic experience. The example for, in my life is an area uh, of fear. It's been a battle my whole life. And it kind of climaxed a few years ago. I'll get that story in a second. But when I was a little kid, I think I was, in, I was five or six, I had ear problems. I went, to, I went to get surgery for ear infections. And I was getting surgery. And they said that the, my parents said goodbye to me. They, you know, said bye. And they put me in the, in the you know, the bed, the bed there to roll me down the hallway. And the nurse rolled me down the hallway. And I, I just, well, I didn't know what's going on. I was young. I was like six years old. And so she says, Brian, we're going we're gonna to prep the operating room. Just, you know, just relax and just take a nap or something. And I thought, okay. So she goes in there and literally, I'm talking hours go by. It was like, I'm laying there in this hallway by myself. And I felt like this blanket of fear just kind of just cover me. And I thought I was going to die. I mean, I just thought that this is it. I mean, no one's coming back for me. And then she comes back, and she rolls me in, and doesn't say much, and she just grabs this mask, the gas mask, and she just goes, suck in air when I put it on your face. I'm just like, what the heck is going on? I'm this little kid. I mean, I know what's going on. She she just grabs this mask, puts it on my face. I'm like, this is it. I'm dying. They're going to kill me. And they strap it on my head like a, you know, like a scuba tank, and they just start telling me to breathe in. I'm just like, "Uh, that's it. But after that event, I remember fear in my life was tremendously different. Like I would every night have these, these nightmares, and I'd run in my dad's room and try to lay down next to him on the bed or on the floor when he wasn't, you know, wasn't awake. And I was, I was terrified. And over time in my life, I just remember having these irrational fears. Someone's in the house or something, whatever it is. It climaxes about five years ago. I just got married to my wife. This is a really embarrassing story, but it's a, it illustrates a point. Anyway, we just got married like a month before, okay? So, so, we're, so we're really in love back then. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. So, so we just gotten married, and I'm driving home for lunch, and I, and I call her, and she doesn't answer. I think, okay, that's no big deal. She doesn't answer. She's probably taking a shower or something like that. So I call her again in 10 minutes. I'm not home yet. I was, I was kind of like 30 minutes away. N- no answer, okay? Now I'm getting a little concerned. The fear thing is starting to kick in a little bit. Call her again, nothing answered. Now I'm thinking, okay, we have some sketchy neighbors next door. You know, there, one guy, actually they were, they actually were sketchy. There was a drug dealer next door. And, um, and, and uh, I was thinking, okay, this is, this is getting serious now. She's not answering. I mean, that's a long shower. I mean, she's she wasting a lot of money here. And so, so, so I get home. It's been like 45 minutes now, 40 minutes. And I, and I, and I got, walk up to the door and the storm door, the outside door, you know, the glass door before the main door is locked, which we never lock ever because we don't have a key for it. So I can't get in the door. And so now the fear kicks in. I'm banging on the door, throwing rocks at the window, and she doesn't answer. And I, right now, I'm thinking, okay, she's, she's, she's dead. You know, she's been, she's probably been raped or something. I'm thinking these, these horrible thoughts. And so, you know, 45 minutes goes by, another few minutes go by. I go around the house. I'm banging on the door, nothing. I grab a brick. So I grab this brick. I walk around the front door, and I'm thinking, I got to rescue my wife. 
And so I break the storm door full on, just take the brick and I throw this thing at the door. It breaks through the glass, puts a hole in the front door as well. And I open the door and as I open the door, there she is walking down the stairs from a shower and she's terrified. And I was terrified. My terror turned into rage. I just spent $300 to save you and you're not dead. I just, what has happened? And literally, I was so, I was just, I realized I was literally like controlled by this fear. It was irrational fear. I mean, she had left the phone downstairs. She was reading for a while, then took a shower or whatever. And it had been like an hour. I mean, and I had literally had, I had her dead and buried. I was working on the eulogy. You know, when I walk in the door, I'm thinking, okay, she's great. Oh, you're still alive. Okay. You know, and so this stuff took over. And there are things in our lives like this. I mean, it's, it's, it is serious. Like, I mean, I mean, I make jokes about it, but traumatic experiences affect us because I let, I agreed with the fear. I let it in. I didn't check it and say, you know, you know, I didn't, you know, ultimately I could have just said, God, you're in control. You control my wife. And I, I am, I submit to you. I give you this fear and, uh, and you're in control. I believe you're, you're, you're protecting my wife, but I didn't. And we all have things like that happen. We, I'd, I'd worked with college ministry in, in Virginia, and this girl, and this is a, this is a real, this stuff happens. I mean, this is very common, I mean, unfortunately, abuse. And she had been uh, sexually molested by one of her relatives for years. And she'd been molested through, like, a really young age. And, and kids begin to try to explain that. They begin to try to rationalize, understand it. So she had said in her mind, the enemy, this is your fault. This is your fault. Or this is all you're good for. This is all you're really good for. You're just an object. And so she goes into high school and begins to give herself to men. Men, you know, guys are dating her. They just, they want what they want, and she gives in. And she begins to think, this is all I'm good for. I'm just an object. And this is what I'm good at. This is, this is all I really am. The enemy is whispering these lies to her, and she's beginning to believe these are her own thoughts. And she begins to agree with those things. And she takes on that identity. She goes into college now, and she's just unable to resist a man making an advance on her. She just literally could not say no. And so she comes to know Jesus, and she confesses all this stuff that she's doing. She's open about the, 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 uh, the struggles and, and, and all that stuff like that. She knows it's wrong. She knows it's instructive. She knows it's painful. She knows it's not good, whatever, and she can't stop still. She was still unable to stop. And as much as she had accountability, as much as she had counseling, the root wasn't identified. The, the issue in her past wasn't identified. Finally, because it was so shameful to her, she reveals what had happened to her for all those years with, with, her, with her uncle or whatever it was. And, and the enemy no longer had the legal right. She repented of it. She forgave the, the man. And God set her free. God set her free. And abuse is a huge thing in so many people's lives. One in three women are, are abused. Not, not every abuse results in that kind of thing. I'm not saying that's the case with everybody. But the point is, I believe God this morning wants us to examine our hearts that as we shine truth, as truth is shined into the darkness and those areas of our lives that we've kept hidden or that we're ashamed of or whatever it may be, he exposes that with truth, with love. He shows the way out and he pours on grace so we could walk it out. That's the process I mentioned last week. The truth exposes what's there. It shines the light in the darkness. It reveals it to us. Then we repent. We turn from it. We, we say, I don't I no longer agree with whatever the lie is, whatever the wound is, whatever the occult issue is. I no longer agree with it. And I, I step out of it right now and I repent. And then God pours out grace so we can walk in freedom. 
You know, that, that's the process. The cross has done it all. The, 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 the Lord has done it all. There's nothing else we can add to that cross. There's nothing else we can add to what Jesus has purchased for us. All we can do is apply it to our lives and the truth of it. Ephesians 6 goes through this, this long, basically, discussion about the armor of God, that this is how we fight against the enemy. And I'll just read it. I'm not going to go through each little piece of, of you know, um, what do you call it, attire, you know, part of the, 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 the warfare. But I'm going to go through one part of it. He says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm. This is like a, a Roman soldier he's describing. Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from a gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which with, with which you can extinguish all the arrows of the enemy. Take the helmet of salvation. This is the big part I wanted to mention. A sword of, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every item in that description is defensive. The shield, the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, the helmet. It's all defensive to, to prevent the arrows from the enemy, the lies, whatever it may be. The only offensive weapon, the only offensive item is the weapon of the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He equates the Spirit working through the Word of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, wrote this book through men. It's our standard. It's the truth. If you complain you don't ever hear God's voice, open the Bible, read it out loud. That's God's voice. There you go. I never hear God's voice. Open the Bible, read it out loud. There you go. It's the, it's the voice of God. We need, to, we need to respect this Word and live by this Word and believe it's our truth. Believe it's our weapon. It's the only weapon that we have. So when fear comes, we quote Scripture and we say, you did not give me a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. When temptation comes, no temptation has seized me except what is common to man. But God, you provide a way out. What's the way out, Lord? We quote, or we believe the word over and against the traumatic, traumatic things or the lies or the occult, whatever it may be. The word is your only weapon, the spirit working through you. When we sing worship, David talked about worshiping warfare. We're just singing truth. That's all we're doing. We're singing truth, the word in, in, in musical form. There's power in the truth. It's our, it's our weapon. It's, it's our greatest weapon to overcome the attacks or the temptations or the accusations of the enemy. So I would encourage you to, 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 to whatever the issue is in your life, if it's fear or if it's lust or if it's whatever it is, find the word, mem- memorize it. It sounds legalistic. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, you have to memorize it. Whatever. Just, do you want freedom? I mean, do you want it? What will you do for it? What would you do today if, I could, if God said, uh, you know, there's freedom. Will you memorize a, a scripture verse and just begin to quote it when that fear or that lust or that temptation comes? It's, it is the process of sanctification in our lives. God sets us free. We're legally free before Christ. And now we apply it to our lives over time. It's all paid in full. What we're going to do right now is we're actually going to have a time to do this, to, to let God expose areas of our lives, to repent, and then ask God to set us free. I want to say this before, before we get into it, though. I want to say this. This is not about feelings. This is not about feelings. We like emotion in our church. We like experience in our church. That's great. But this matter, this issue is legal. It's a legal matter. It's related to truth. And if you feel nothing this morning and you go through this and you pray this, 
it doesn't mean nothing's happened. If you don't cry or you don't laugh or you don't feel warmth or you don't get goosebumps. You may feel all those things. I keep spitting, my gosh. I'm baptizing people here. Anyway, so if you don't feel anything, it doesn't mean nothing's happening. And we are so sometimes defined by the feelings. If I don't feel the goosebumps, then it must mean nothing's happening. No, it's not true. This is a legal matter. You believe the truth and you apply it and then you say, God, it's in your hands now. I can't make it happen. I can't do anything else. I just, you just confess and believe it. It's applied through, by faith. And the faith is, this is true. God's promise is true. God is a loving, kind, powerful king. He loves you. He purchased you. You're the bride of Christ. That's the truth. Feelings or not, it's the truth. If you don't know Jesus, you need him. This morning, you need the Lord because you're enslaved to sin. You need him to set you free. He wants to give you life, adopt you as a child and say, you're my beloved. I enjoy you. That cross is for you. So it's not about feelings this morning. I hope there's feelings. I hope there's, there's emotion. I hope that you, you, you could feel the freedom God's done. But if you don't, it's only because, again, we've not believed the truth. So there is maybe not a corresponding feeling. And the feelings will come over time, I believe. It oftentimes takes, it takes time. So this morning, I want to just close with that. I want to pray. The process basically is expose, which is God's doing. We're going to ask the Lord to speak through the Holy Spirit. And God's going to set people free. Expose, repent, and then we're basically renouncing or expelling. Renouncing just means to break agreement with. That's it's a fancy word or a you know, heavy word, but it just means to break agreement, renouncing. So whatever that you've agreed with, whatever lie may be, we're going to say, God, we renounce that. Here's a, here's a sample prayer. Okay, I'll do a sample prayer. Here we go. <laughs> you know, Lord, I, I, God, I have agreed with fear, and I just want to say, Lord, I come out of agreement with fear. I repent of fear, and I say, Lord, forgive me for agreeing with fear the way it's affected my life. And Lord, I repent of it, and I pray right now that you would break the power of fear in my life through the cross of Jesus Christ, and I renounce any agreement with it. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's, I don't make it, again, make it formulaic or legalistic. This is between you and God. You can do whatever you want. But I believe as we expose, repent, and renounce, those are the three main elements. Our church has a counseling ministry. If you want to be prayed for more specifically, you know, or do ministry time, ministry time will happen as well. But if you want more prayer about this stuff, I would say call up the church office and set a time up. We have prayer ministry, prayer counseling that we do to go through these areas of your lives, whether it be traumatic experiences or the occult or generational patterns or just addictions or habitual problems. Sometimes that really can be helpful. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing that we offer at our church. So expose, repent, renounce. I'm going to pray for us, and Dave's going to come and, come and close us. Um, we should have time for it. Yep. Let's pray. God, we just open our hearts to you right now, Lord. We open our minds to you. We thank you, Lord, that this is not about a feeling, God. This is about truth. And Lord, I pray right now you would shine light into any area that we have allowed in, God, through these four categories. God, we love you, and we want to walk in all that you've promised us, the freedom and the joy and the life and the confidence and the power. We want to walk free from these things, that we could walk free in holiness. So Holy Spirit, would you, in the next minute, as we are silent before you, Lord, as we just bring these things before you, Lord, would you just come now,
pour out grace, pour out light into the darkness. We just confess these things to you, Lord, and we trust you right now with our hearts that you're good, you're kind, you're loving, you're powerful, and you have purchased us by the blood and the love of Christ. We love you, God. You're worthy, God, of our hearts, affections, and desires this morning. Thank you, Lord. Come now, Holy Spirit.